Father, it is, uh, it is lonely sometimes. It is lonely in this life. We feel as if we are all by ourselves. And the burdens of life are not so easily bore by our spouses and our friends. The burden is too strong for our backs. The burden is too strong for their backs. And we feel alone because we cannot feel your embrace. We do not hear your words of comfort spoken to us as a friend. We feel alone. And yet the word says that you indwell us that we know you have more communion with you than we can have with the closest of confidants. You're the one that dwells within us, and it is your presence that we feel the most. So, Father, right now we anticipate that you would speak to us as we open up your word, that you would speak to us because we feel so alone, but we know that you are so near to us. Open our hearts. Speak to us. We need you. You're my prayer. Amen. Amen. Um, you know, I said in the first service how I, I just love singing those old songs. You know, I love singing a song that has been in the tradition of the Christian faith for hundreds of years. I love that. I just, I love it. I'm a hymn guy. If you're looking to buy me a CD, my birthday's coming up, feel free to buy me anything, any band that has redone a hymn or something like that. I love it. And the reason I love it is because it's just, it's, it's like going fishing with your grandfather, knowing that he used to fish with his grandfather, and he used to fish with his father, and his father, and his father, and there's that tradition, that stream of the family of God, to know that I'm singing a song that someone 300 years ago was singing. That just excites me. I love it. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but I just love it. I love this. I love it. And even though the language and the vernacular may not be what's relevant to you, the message has been piercing the hearts of millions for thousands of years. It's fun to sing the gospel, even if it's not something that's to a good beat that you would say would be playing on the radio. It's lovely. It's lovely and it's sweet to our Savior's ears to hear, hear us sing it to him. So, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, something I don't love, and uh, something I don't love is flying. I hate flying. Can't stand flying. Uh, you can ask Dave. Big Dave, Pastor Big Dave, makes fun of me every time we fly. Likes to poke fun at me. Great, yeah, seven hours on a flight with that guy. That's fun, you know. Uh, that's why I hate flying. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I can't stand flying. I, I don't like it. Um, there's something about being suspended miles in the air in a glorified tin can, only held up in defying gravity by the innovation creativity of mankind. That bothers me. There's something about that is not reassuring, right? I, I just, I don't feel comfortable. I get anxious. Uh, I'm filled with uncertainty. I don't like it. Now, it's not an irrational fear as in I don't avoid flying. You know, it's not like I take the bus to go to school in Louisville, Kentucky. I fly, okay? I avoid the 33-hour trip in a car, and I fly. I just do it. I get over it, right? I've got, 
a flight coming up that's a nine and a half hour flight uh, for a conference. Not excited about it. Not excited about it. Don't sleep on flights. Doesn't happen. Flew all the way to Germany. Didn't sleep a wink. It was awful. I don't like, I don't like flying. I don't like flying. And every time we hit a bump, I'm like, you know, last time I flew, I was flying with uh, my wife. This is two times ago. I was flying, I was flying with my wife. And this just shows you how much I don't like flying. Is I'm um, sitting with my wife and we hit this bump. You know, or that, that sound. The most gut-wrenching, bone-chilling sound. Ding! And the seatbelt light comes on. Right? Pilot doesn't say anything. That's panic mode for me. I'm like, ah, what's going to happen? Right? I get it. I get it. I have too much anxiety in me. So I remember the light came on. Ding! You know what happens to me? I start confessing sin. Stuff I don't even know. Right? It's true. I turn to my wife. I'm like, baby girl, I'm, I'm just not the husband that you need me to be. And I'm sorry. She looks at me like, is there something specific? No. But I love you so much. It's like, Paul, this isn't judgment day. Okay? You're, you're okay. But that, I don't like flying. I don't like it. So that anxiety has led me, the last time I, I flew, I was flying from Louisville to Oakland by myself, and I'm sitting in the torture chamber of purgatory, which is the, basically before you're sitting on your flight waiting for A group, B group, C group, and I'm always like F group. You know, I'm, I'm like, you're the back of the plane. What? You're going to sit in the stall. That's where you are the whole plane ride, which the turbulence is worse in there. Have you noticed that? Anyways, that's not the point of what I'm saying. I get so anxious, and so I, as I was sitting there waiting for my group to board, I said, you know what? I have a smartphone. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to use it. I'm going to get some facts. I'm going to get some facts. I'm going to do some investigation because I need to tell something to myself as I'm flying. When that ding comes on or we hit a bump or the stewardess, they start buckling up, that's when you've got to be afraid. When they start buckling up, it's all over. <laughs> Make your peace with God. I need something there to help me. So I did some research, found a bunch of facts, started doing stuff, and it calmed my anxiety partially. So I'm going to give you some of those little nuggets, some of those little truths that help me when I fly. One of them is that pilots, their whole careers, will often go their whole careers without ever experiencing an engine failure, which that makes me feel good. I fly maybe two times, you know, every three months. I don't fly a lot. Pilots, they fly all the time. Four, five days a week, I don't know, and maybe several flights in those days. And they could go their whole career, thousands of flights, never experiencing an engine failure. So I said, okay, that's pretty good. And did you know this? I didn't know this, but if you experience an engine failure, if you're flying and both engines go out, right, you can actually glide. Aircrafts are made to glide. Who knew that? You can glide for 30 minutes. You can travel 120 miles just gliding before you land on the ground. Land on the ground. See, I didn't know that because I've been educated through television. I watched Lost. I saw what happened. That plane blew apart and they fell straight to the ground. And that's what you think. If that engine fails, we're at the mercy of gravity and we are plummeting towards the earth crust. And we're going to make a giant crater, right? That's what I think. But no, that's not how it's designed. Now, the big one is, what are the odds? What are the odds? I love statistical data. Give me the information. Let me know, Paul, this activity right here you feel is safe. You do this all the time. This is more at risk 
than flying. That's, those are helpful to me, those scenarios. I can speak that to myself as I'm clinching the Southwest peanuts in my hand. They're about to burst on my companion over to my right, right? That's what I need. So I looked that up. You are a hundred times more likely to die being hit by a vehicle while you're walking than dying in a plane crash. Did you know that? You are a hundred times more likely walking across the street being hit by a car and dying. hundred times more likely. You are 400 times more likely to die in a car crash actually in the car. So that, make, that makes me feel good. And the scariest part of the flight is right when you're leaving the last part of the airport and you're about to get on the plane and they got that little rubber thing, you know what I'm talking about? Don't ever, don't stand on the rubber. You're going to fall straight through. Just trust me, okay? I like to do a hop. Like the stewardess is like, hi. I'm like, I'm not looking at you. I'm focusing on my feet. I got to do my little jump thing. Okay, how are you doing? Yes, I'll take the peanuts. Thank you, right? When I do that, I think, Paul, walking across the street is more, you're more at risk, okay? This is safer than walking across the street. This is safer, and I still do my jump. It's safer than walking across the street. Now, I tell you that because anxiety is sometimes viewed as a bad thing. Now, I'm not talking about anxiety attacks. I'm not talking about a stress, you know, where it, it limits what you can do physically. It, it, it hurts your body. I'm not talking about that kind of anxiety attack. But anxiety is oftentimes a good thing. Uncertainty, uneasiness can be a good thing. Why? Because it leads to a test. It leads to investigation. It leads to gathering facts which can solve your anxiety, can give you comfort, because that's what the truth does. This is exactly the same thing we're doing in this series. In the know. It is not John's intention to persuade you, to convince you, to lull you into a false sense of security about your salvation. That's not his point. When he says, I want you, I write these things, why? Because I want you to know that you have eternal life. What he's saying, I want you to know, therefore, test yourself. There are moral tests. There are doctrinal tests. What you believe, how you behave. That's the whole book of 1 John. And what we do sometimes is we treat this anxiety almost as a sin. But it's not. Or sometimes we treat it as a sign of immaturity. He's an immature Christian. That's why he's asking these questions. But I think the opposite can actually be a sign of immaturity. You see, because this idea of testing yourself is all throughout Scripture. Peter, in one of his letters, in his second letter, what he says is you need to confirm your calling. And that's a command. Confirm your calling. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, in even stronger language, he says in verse 5, examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. It's a command to test ourselves. And that anxiety, that discomfort, that uncertainty should lead to a test, an examination, investigation, till you find the truth and that is the source of your comfort. So the question today is what is the test? What is the test? First John is full of them. What is the test in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9? What is the test? First John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. The test is a test of process. 
It's the process test. The Christian life is never described to us as a flat line. As you get saved and you act as you were then, and you continue to act as you were then, as you go on. The idea is a process, a process of progress, an upward moving spiral full of downs but also ups. And the overall trajectory of your life is moving to being conformed to the image of Christ. It's a process of progress, not a process of regress. A downward moving spiral with some high points, but mostly lows. And the overall trajectory of your life is every day that you go on, you are less and less like Christ. The Christian life is a process. 1 John chapter 3, starting with verse 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not, it did not know Him. Beloved, we are children of God now. What will develop in this passage is a sense of tension, now and not yet. Now and not yet. What we are right now is children of God, but there is something out there that we are not yet. And that's where he's going. Beloved, we are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. There's something out there that we don't know yet or fully understand yet. When we look at ourselves, we are not there yet, but we're getting there. That's the idea of a process. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. When is the end of that process? When we see Christ. When we see Christ, then we will be transformed and we will be like him. See, oftentimes what we do when we read this text, we take it as a proof text for a glorified body. What that means is when we're trying to answer the question of what do I look like in heaven? Will I still have scars? I had open heart surgery. There's a scar across my chest. Is it still going to be there? Right? I have wounds. I've lost a leg. I've lost limbs. I've lost organs. Will they be there? What will my body, what will I look like? Will I be 18? Will I be 88? What will I look like? And sometimes when we ask those questions, we look to this text for answers. To say, we'll be like Jesus Christ. I don't know what I'll look like. I don't know what my glorified body will look like. Hopefully mine is a little taller. I put that order in, but I don't know. Um, what will it look like? And we use this and we say, when Jesus Christ comes, whatever he looks like, will look like. See, but John has no intention of asking or answering that question. That is not the context of what he's saying. In verse 3, that second half, it says this, and everyone who thus hopes in him, his coming, his appearing, his revelation, everybody who hopes in this purifies himself as he is pure. The language is about morals. It's about behavior. It's about character. We are being sanctified, made holy, purified in this hope of waiting for him. And when we see him, we will be like him in that we will be sinless. This process of progress 
will be over. It'll reach its climax, its consummation right there when we see Christ. Then we'll be fully conformed to the image of his son. That's John's concern here. It's character, it's behavior, it's morality. It's not physical bones what we will look like. We are not yet what we will be, but we are getting there. It's a process. This idea of process isn't foreign to the New Testament. This idea of a process of progress isn't foreign to the mind of Paul. It's in the mind of John. It's in the mind of Paul. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul speaks of this process of progress. He says, And we, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are now, presently, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Another translation says, we are being transformed from glory to glory. The idea of we are getting somewhere. Not only are we going somewhere and our destination will soon be heaven and we'll leave this world behind, but we are becoming what we will be in that we will be conformed to the image of his Son. When does this process end? When does it end? 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 John 3, 2 through 3 say this process ends and only ends, not in this life. It ends when we see Christ, when he comes, when he is revealed, when he appears again. That is when this process ends. But when does it begin? When does it begin? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, this process begins, why? Because Christ has taken away our sin. Verse 8 says he's destroyed the work of the devil. So when does that happen? When does that happen? When has Christ taken away our sin? What event in redemptive history would be the point that you would point to to say, this is when my sins were taken away. This is when the work of the devil was destroyed. The cross. The cross and its resurrection and his resurrection. But that was almost 2,000 years ago. I wasn't born then. When is that process real? When do I experience that initial part of the process? It's when you know the gospel. It's when you believe the gospel, when you trust the gospel, when you realize you desperately need God's forgiveness. God made you and God makes the rules. And you break the rules. I break the rules. The burden of the law cannot be held by any of our backs. We will be crushed by it. The expectations are way too lofty. And if we think we can beat him, we are full of pride. We desperately need his forgiveness. And the gospel says he provided that forgiveness in sending his son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully man, who took your punishment, fully obeyed, but he took on a punishment of disobedience that was my own and he rose again from the grave, making forgiveness available, but not automatic. You needed it. He provided it. It's right there, but you must accept it in faith. You must accept it by repentance. You must accept it by trusting in him and turning from your sin. You must accept it saying, I, in faith, trust that you are reliable, that you are trustworthy when you say you can forgive me and forgive me through your son, Jesus Christ. I trust that you can. And I make you Lord of my life. That is the moment your sins are taken away. That is the moment the work of the devil is destroyed. That is the beginning of the process. But what does that process look like? What does it look like? 
Is there a glimpse of how we can know that we are in the midst of this process? If you were to thrust us into this process, what does it look like? What are its characteristics? How can I diagnose it? How can I know I'm in that? I think that's what the rest of our passage is about. Verses 4 through 9 are about what does that process look like. So let's start with verse 4. I believe the answer is it's a process of repentance. A process of repentance. Verse 4 says this, Everyone, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order. He appeared past. His first coming. He appeared in order to take away sin and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The beauty of this is in John's mind he talks about what Christ has done salvifically for us. In salvation, the theology, theology of it is just beautiful. He has taken away our sins, our propitiation, our atonement. He has appeased the wrath of God. The just God can now be the justifier. It's beautiful. But there is no wedge in his mind of the beautiful grandeur of theology and practice. There are practical implications to the cross work of Jesus Christ. It is not only God seeing you as justified and righteous. It is God making you righteous. It is not God just calling you good. He is making you good. Christ's death has freed sin off your record and it is taking sin out of your life. And we say oftentimes, Christ has handled our sin, past, present, and future. When we're explaining the gospel to students, we train our leaders to make sure that point of the future sins, their future sins are dealt with, that forgiveness is something they have and have forever if they truly embrace it in faith and repentance. That Christ handled your sin, past, present, and future. But sometimes we forget to emphasize that he has changed your future. Your story has been rewritten. And the pages that were darkened by sin previously and the coming chapters that were filled by sin line by line, the past is removed and the future is being erased. There are sins that you will not commit in the future because he has taken sin out of your life. John says that a Christian is purified from the practice of sin. He cannot practice sin. What's the idea there? The idea is this, not perfection, not perfection, not that sin won't occur, but a practice of it cannot. The verbal picture here is this. Now, I'm a, I'm a SoCal boy, Grew up in Southern California. Loved the Rose Parade. It's a tradition in my family to watch the Rose Parade, watch the Rose Bowls. The first day I became a USC fan was 1995. The Rose Bowl is beautiful. We won, and I fell in love with the team that was in red, which is University of Southern California. But the Rose Parade was always interesting to me. It's just a part of, like, Southern California pride. And sometimes when you watch the Rose Parade, what you have is you have these street views, where the parade is just ever before you, continuously, with no breaks. There's a band, there's a float, there's a band, there's a float, there's horses, float, 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 band, just ever before you. You don't know when it began, you don't know when it ends, and there are no breaks. But there's another view 
of when they back up and maybe they show a blimp kind of view and you see the whole parade, blocks and blocks, miles and miles from beginning to end, you see the whole thing. The verbal picture here of practicing sin is that first one. It's being in the midst of the action, a continuous, habitual pattern with no end or beginning in sight. The emphasis is there is no break. It's presently before you. And John's point is that is not how a Christian lives with sin. It cannot be continuous before you. It cannot be a perpetual pattern. Christ has ruined you for that. You cannot do it. You cannot practice it. You are not in the midst of that parade. But how? How has he done it? How has he done it? What's John's ground for making such a, such a statement? Because Christ has taken away your sin. Christ has come and taken away your sin. You cannot practice it. His cross work has altered your lifestyle. His work has shut down the buffet of sin that we used to gorge ourselves on. His cross work has shown light into the darkness of our misdeeds and shown them to be repulsive as they are. His cross work has repaired our ears that sin's song no longer seduces us. He has changed our lives. He's taken away our sin judicially and practically. He has taken your sin out of the courtroom of heaven and he's taken your sin out of the bedroom of your house. He's changed you practically, judicially. Christ's work has purified you from the practice of sin. But his work not only changes your behavior, it's changed your master. It's changed the one who's in control of you or was in control of you. The one who moved your will to and fro as he willed. Starting with verse 4 of 1 John, sorry, starting with verse 7, 1 John chapter 3. It says, little children, do not deceive yourself. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So now John is moving his argument. What he's saying, let me give you the origin of what practicing righteousness looks like. It starts somewhere. It starts with a master. It starts with somebody else. If you practice righteousness, it is because you act as him. You are righteous. But then he flips the script. Whoever practices sinning, whoever makes a practice of sinning, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared, his cross work, his resurrection, the reason he was revealed, the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. He has cut off that origin. So you should not act like him anymore. You should not act like Satan anymore. Because no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. See how it goes back to the origin? Born of God. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God. Before Jesus Christ came into your life in the truth and the beauty of the gospel, before you understood you needed forgiveness that God provided in his one and only son, before you accepted that, embraced that as your only hope of salvation and being right with the creator of the universe, before that moment is a scary scene how our souls are described. Ephesians 2 said that we followed Satan. We followed him. It says his power 
worked inside of us. Ephesians 2. John 8 says that with Satan as our father, we longed to do his will. Longed, deep desire to do the bidding of our master. We may not have been possessed, but we were mastered. But Christ has made all the difference in this. Christ has triumphantly crushed the head of that wicked serpent. Christ has broken the chains of your old master. And he has given you a new father whose power works in you. Ephesians says that Satan's power worked in you. Now what is true for you is Philippians chapter 2 where it says God's work or God's power is working within you to will and to act according to his great purpose. We are under new management. We, have, we are under a new influence. The ship of our life is no longer tossed to and fro by demonic breezes, but now the sails of our life take flight when the winds of the Spirit carry us on. That is the difference. There is a difference. We have a new father. We have a new master, and we do his will, and we long to do it. And John makes it very plain. It's not a complex argument. He says, basically, you don't act like your old father. You act like your new father. This adoption has changed your behavior. This adoption has broken the pattern of sin. This process of progress, being conformed to the image of his son, started when Jesus Christ purified you from the practice of sin and purified you from the power of Satan. This process of moral, behavioral transformation starts with the work of Christ and will end when Christ comes again. It's a process of repentance because repentance is what breaks the practice of sin. Repentance is like a car running in the midst of the parade and stopping everything. Breaking the continuous habitual pattern. That's what repentance is. Sin still occurs, but the practice of sin is gone. But in this process of the Christian life, we view it differently. We put the burden of our comfort on something else than repentance. And we work against what, Paul, what John is saying in chapter 3. We make this process about perfection. The burden, the standard of the Christian life is not perfection. It's easy to see just in chapter 3. In verses 2 and 3, he says what? When does this process end? When are you fully conformed to the image of Christ? When are you fully purified? Only when you see him. And not a minute before. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 Sorry, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we're without sin, then we lie, and the truth of God is not in us. Perfection is not Paul's, or sorry, John's point. That is not the means of your comfort. If you throw that burden on your back, you will fall to your knees quickly in one day. Perfection is not the standard. The standard is repentance. But this process is also not free from great sin. If you ever asked yourself the question, what sin can a Christian not commit? What sin is just too egregious, too great to disqualify us from the forgiveness of God? What can a Christian not do? Lust, 
adultery, murder. Surely no Christian born of God could do that. What about David? What about King David? What about the man who's given the title, you are a man after God's own heart. And yet his lust led to adultery, led to a lie, to a cover-up, and then led to murder. But what happened after he repented? He repented in tears and in sorrow. That is the standard of the Christian life. John doesn't mention one particular sin. Think of how short the book of 1 John could have been. One verse. If there was a specific sin that disqualified you, he could say, I write these things to know that you may know that you have eternal life. If you've committed murder, no. Letter done. You don't need five chapters. If there's a specific sin in his mind, why didn't he say it? Why doesn't any of Scripture say it? If there's a specific sin, specific sin, why not mention it? All that John mentions is the practice of sin, the practice of sin, the habitual pattern of sin. And a habitual pattern of sin is not a, necessarily a habitual pattern of grievous sin. It could be pride. It could be anger. It could be lust. It could be lying. Any of those things, the practice of sin cannot remain. But the Christian life is not free from sin. A Christian cannot practice. A Christian cannot be in a perpetual pattern of sin but a Christian is not exempt from grievous sin. And this process is not a process of conviction. It's not a process of sorrow for sin. It's not a process of grief or depression. This was given to me when I was in high school, when I was a young kid. I remember when I experienced the grace of God for the first time. I mean experience, known of it and what he did in Christ. But knowing that Christ has lifted the burden of God's wrath from off my shoulders. I remember that day being so freed from the burden of God's wrath on my life. I mean, it was heavy. It was weighty. I felt it as if hell were burning my heels. I felt it. And the freedom that I found in that was so emotionally freeing. But I remember just after that, nah, maybe a couple years, I was in a car with a friend, dropped me off from our youth group, dropped me off from church, sitting on Harrison Avenue in Ventura, California. Dark outside, the car light was on, I was focused on this conversation, and I just got real with my friend. I just confessed, and I said, you know what, I've sinned. I've messed up, and I feel like I'm beyond the pale of grace. I feel as if forgiveness hands cannot find me or embrace me. I feel I've gone too far. I feel like I've shipwrecked my faith. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I need to ask him for forgiveness again and accept Christ as Savior again. I don't know. And this was my comfort. My friend looked at me and said, well, how did you feel? How did you feel when you sinned? Oh, I felt awful. I felt terrible. I felt like I spit in his face. That he did so much for me and I just spit in his face. I felt unworthy. I felt that the wrath of God should just destroy me. Stop playing with this petty boy who falls into sin. Just do away with him. That's what I felt like. And this is what my friend said. Well, then that's how you know you're a Christian. Because you felt bad. 
That is not, that is not ever given as a comfort in Scripture. Sorrow, godly sorrow, depression, I would even say conviction is never given as a ground for being comforted in your security in Christ. Never. Never. What, what could that be then? What is that moral turmoil that's in me? It could be your conscience. God said that he has given us a conscience to know right and wrong. Romans says it. The law of God is in our minds. That may be your conscience. Or it may be conviction. But it may be the conviction that Jesus Christ talks about in John chapter 16, verse 8, when he talks about the Holy Spirit coming. And he's saying, let me tell you what this guy's going to do. When he comes, he's going to convict the world of righteousness, judgment, and sin. Convict the world of sin, righteousness, thank you, Pastor. Of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But he's going to convict the world. There is a general conviction from the Holy Spirit on everybody. A good example of this is the story of Judas and Peter. Similar men, to some degree, chosen to follow Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, Jesus calls Judas, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, calls Judas a demon. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus looks back and looks at Peter and calls him Satan. Not great resumes. Judas betrays Jesus Christ with a kiss is the instrument of Jesus Christ's death in the plot to destroy God's Messiah. Peter denies Jesus Christ three times before his death. And both, both of them felt sorrow. Both of them felt grief. Both of them felt their conscience and I believe the weight of conviction. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Listen, listen to Judas. Listen to how Matthew describes Judas. Matthew chapter 27, starting with verse 3, going to verse 5. This is Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the one called a demon by Jesus Christ himself. It says this, Then when Judas, his betrayer, the writers of the gospel never free Judas from this term, He's always accused of this. Saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, listen to this, I have sinned. That sounds like confession. He's coming to the altar. He's talking to the pastor. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knows exactly what he did. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hung himself. His sorrow led to his suicide. Peter felt sorrow too. Just the chapter before that, in Matthew 26, it says, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Similar men, similar feelings, but drastically different endings. Judas killed himself. Judas's grief led him to suicide. 
only confirming what Christ said in John chapter, tw- John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer when he's talking to God his Father and says, Judas is lost. He is a son of destruction. His sorrow was meaningless. But Peter meets the resurrected Christ in John chapter 21. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Sorrow is never, ever a comfort in the assurance of our Christianity. Our comfort does not come in conviction. Our comfort does not come in perfection. Our comfort does not come from the absence of grievous sin. Our comfort comes in repentance, breaking the practice of sin. When my friend was talking to me in the car, the passage he was referring to, which I believe he opened to, was Galatians chapter 5. To give me some sense of comfort that there's a moral anxiety, there's conflict within me, and that shows that I'm a believer. He took that from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. This is where he went to to point that my comfort lies in my conviction. Galatians 5.16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not glorify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires, desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. There's the rub. Right? There's the conflict. That's, it's right there. There's, there's two gladiators bidding for your will and your choice. It says that they do this to keep you from doing the things you want to do. These two great gladiators fight the spirit and the flesh, both with different agendas, trying to win your will to get your choice, to lead you to whatever deed it is, whether righteous or unrighteous. They are battling within you. If only I would have read the rest of the chapter. If only. Because in verse 24, it says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If there is no fight in you, no fight, no moral conviction for anything that you do, then I think you would say, and it would be easy to say, that you're not a Christian. Absolutely. But if there is a fight within you, does that mean you're a Christian? No. It could be a sign of conscience. It could be a sign of the general conviction of the Holy Spirit. It means nothing. It means nothing. Galatians says the fight should be one that you're winning. It's one of victory. As the pages on the calendar keep unfolding, the older you get, the punch count between these two gladiators should continually, progressively getting in the favor of the Spirit, not the flesh. And the knockout round is when he comes again. But not until then. Sin should lead to sorrow. And that sorrow should lead to repentance. Repentance, changing your mind that leads to a change in action. Turning from your sin, hoping, wishing, and striving never to perform it again. Your Christian life may look like you are losing some battles, but you are winning the war. 
It is a process of progress being conformed to the image of his son, breaking the pattern of sin by repentance. Now let's get really, really practical. Well, how do I know? Well, how do I know? Where's my assurance lie? It's not in conviction. It's not in the absence of grievous sin. It's not in perfection. It's in repentance. The question is simple. What do you do when you sin? What do you do when you sin? Do you hide it? Do you hide it from those you need to be reconciled to? Do you hide it from those who you should confess it to for the sake of health? Do you overlook your sin? Do you easily glance over it, considering it as never to be something that should be dealt with immediately? Do you downplay your sin? You make your follies into minor infractions. You should be anxious. If you hide it, if you overlook it, if you downplay it, you should be anxious. That's John's point. If you find it easy to sin, your life is more characterized as lapses into good than lapses into evil. You should be anxious. But if you repent, if you sin and you will sin, when you sin, if you repent, then and only then should you be comforted because then you're in the know. Then you could be assured because the comfort of our Christianity lives in only that. That we repent of our sin. Not that we're freed from it. Not that we don't have occurrences of it. Not that we don't crit, commit great sin. Not that we don't feel bad about it. We are Christians because the standard of Christianity is repentance. That started with the work of Christ and will end when, he, when we see him again. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us. I thank you that the burden, the standard of Christianity, of living this life is not perfection because I would fall flat on my face just as I walk down the stairs of this stage. I can't bear that burden. But that burden has already been bared for me. That burden was bared by the Son of Jesus Christ. He is my perfection. He is my righteousness. He is the reason I stand before you clothed in His righteousness. And the Christian life is holding closer and tighter onto that righteousness. Which works in me, repentance. When I sin, I grieve. I'm depressed. But that leads me to repent, find forgiveness, and not become an Eeyore spiritually, but to be a mighty man with every step of repentance, a step stronger towards you and being conformed to the image of your son. Father, thank you. Thank you for starting a work in me, a work in us that you will see through till the day we see you again. Amen.